1: Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel
2: Sylvester. We're talking to leading figures about how overcoming the challenges of their early
1: lives shape the people they've become. We've been interviewing people together for newspapers for more than 20 years. What struck us over and over again is how many of them have dealt with trauma or tragedy as children.
2: Some have lost a parent or seen those around them struggle with serious illness, poverty, addiction or mental health problems. It could have destroyed them but for some
1: reason the adversity seems to drive them on. Our guest today is the actor Brian Cox, famous for playing powerful men. His roles have included Winston Churchill, Titus Andronicus, Herman Goering and most recently Logan Roy, the mesmerising media mogul with his power cardigans in the television drama Succession for which he won the Best Actor Award at the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. Or sitting in his house in Primrose Hill which is crammed full of really everything from your life, isn't it? From your exercise bike, to paintings, yeah. to, Yeah, well, know, know, well radio times from years back when you've played all your Shakespearean roles. Yeah,
3: this was, all of this was in storage for about 10 years and I got it out and suddenly said, well, I've got, I, this is what I wanted and I haven't seen it. And then finally I've got it now and uh, I'm really, I've had it for the last three years, which has been great.
1: What well, we wanted to ask you first is how you're drawn to these characters and how they're drawn to you.
3: It's more how they're drawn to me than I'm drawn to them. Um, I seem to have um, a penchant for authority, or authority <laughs> figures. I, 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 I really don't feel that's who I am at all. In fact, I feel I'm quite the opposite to these figures I play. I'm fascinated, of course, by that kind of male dying patriarchy really Um, and I do see it as dying and it's about bloody time it died uh, quite frankly because of the mess we've made of stuff I'm talking about males and so I play these characters who are almost diametrically opposed to who I am as a person Um, and uh, it's fascinating because you know, they, they, they always say the devil has the best songs, and so that's one of the appeals of playing somebody like Logan Roy. But, but also it's more than that because, I mean, for instance, playing Hermann Göring, I had to give him a point of view, and I had discovered that the man did have a point of view. He had a very clear point of view, actually, about Germany and about what would happen. This was before the Holocaust, before all of that. But what he would seen and what he did at his trial was he defended National Socialism because he said, as he rightly said, you know, the Treaty of Versailles was extremely uh, punishing and punishing to Germany. And he rallied, he saw this young Aust- Austrian lad, this painter who came along, and he put all his faith in him. Now... Of course, we know that that was not a great thing and we know that man was not a great man, it was Hitler. But at the same time, it's fascinating to understand how people are motivated in times of crisis. So it's kind of interesting what that man is. You suddenly get a perspective that the media doesn't give Mm. you and, and documentaries don't give you because they just show you, as it were, the facts. And the facts are not always the entire story. So, do you know you
2: want people to understand or even empathise with these often quite. I want them to
3: understand, uh, yeah, empathy, I I, I certainly don't want sympathy, but I want them to understand that really um, the terrible thing is they're all human beings. And you have to admit that the human experiment is rather disappointing.
1: But with Logan Roy, it's even more interesting in some ways because they're parallels. With your own life, aren't there? He's very different from you, but he grew up in Dundee. He did. He's but that was a daughter, decision they sons. made
3: when we'd start. We'd already started the show. So I that mean, was by chance. No, no, it wasn't by chance. Like, they suddenly decided I was born in Quebec in the originals, and then they did an ADR session where they dubbed over the fact that they and they made me. They decided he came from Dundee. Now this was the writer's decision; it wasn't my decision. I had suggested playing the part Scots to start with, and Jesse Armstrong was very against that. Said, "Oh no, no, no! He's got to be American. He's got to be American." So I was playing an American, albeit in the, you know in the first episode I was born in Quebec, <laughs> and they had this whole birthday celebration, born in Quebec, Canada. And then in the ninth episode of the first series, Peter Friedman, who played the the guy who actually honoured me at the birthday dinner said, you know they've changed your birthplace and I said, what do you mean they've changed my birthplace he said, you're no longer born in Quebec I said, so where am I born he said, well I don't know, He said, I can't remember he said, oh hang on, and he looked at his device, his iPad, and he went, oh oh, look you were born in somewhere called Dundee, Scotland (laughs) and I said, but that's where I'm from, so what is the idea, he said, I don't know, I'm just the actor, I don't know, so I went up to Jesse I said, so what so said, oh, yeah. And the, old, the writers looked and chuckled and said, we thought it'd be a bit of a surprise. I said, it's a hell of a surprise. Mm. I've been playing this part for nine episodes, thinking <laughs> that he's coming from somewhere. And He said, well, you know, he was born and then he came, he was part of a sort of, and there was a kind of kinder transport, a transport thing of, of kids who went to Canada at the beginning of the war. So that's what happened to me.
2: So you were born in 1946, I, I think. Was. What was well, Dund- I was. Mean, he's older
3: than me. <laughs> what was like.
2: Dundee like then? It was a year after the war. It must have been very different. pretty.
3: it was pretty, pretty grey. It, um, it was very much in the shadow of the war. There was, um, I mean, there was this, We still had a sense of celebration uh, in uh, New Year, uh, Hogmanay. My dad used to put me on the coal bunker at home which was in a window recess, and that was my first stage. And I would do Al Jolson impersonations mm-hmm. when I was about two and a half. Ah. And my dad was—I had—he was a lovely man, my father. But he died when I was, well, I, I was eight when he passed away, and then, and then everything hit the fan. I mean, it was blissful up until a certain point, and then it all went. Belly up. You could
1: you remember doing things with your father then like that?
3: I do. I remember I remember following my father. I remember getting lost when I was three and I messed my pants and ended up at the police station. But I, because I, I sort of probably, had, well, I did adore my father. So, And he was kind of mythic. So I followed him one day to his work, except I got lost, horribly lost, and I was missing for a whole day. And eventually, and then my parents were going nuts, and eventually they found me in the police station. He was um he had a small shop he had two actually he had one started in in a place called Charles Street in Dundee and ironically his name was Charles Chick and what happened was that um, he bec- his shop became the hub of the community and it was a you know pretty working class pretty poor um, families uh, families in transit and this was before the housing schemes were developed. So there were people who were living locally and there were, you know, quite a lot of them were unemployed. I mean, my hometown was an interesting hometown because Dundee was ostensibly... uh, Well, in the 19th century, when my people... Because my folks all came from Ireland. They all came from a place outside in a skirm called Largi. And they all came to... And it was the women. There was nothing for the men. And it was just... Uh, the famine and the industrial revolution, it's, I always think it's so weird that they all happened at the same time because the famine released the Irish workforce, so you had people coming across and working in the cotton mills. And most of these Irish women could spin and they could weave. And my my great-great-grandmother, was, uh, she was a spinner and a weaver, and they came to work in the jute mills of Dundee. And jute was an interesting thing. It's, it's from, it comes from um, the Bengal area of, uh, of India. And it's a small, it's like sizal. It's actually what rope is. But it, it was, you could only get it in small lengths. But they discovered, and this was the other thing about Dundee, Dundee was a whaling town. So they discovered by dipping the jute in whale oil, they could extend it. And, it, and they built these huge, huge machines. I mean, vast machines. And my, my family, my, uh, my relations, um, they came, the women, as I say, to work. The men were known as kettle boilers, which meant that's what they did, because they had no work. So 80% of the working population of, in Dundee were women, uh, predominantly Catholic women, uh, in a fairly Protestant city. And they were, so there was this matriarchal tradition, which was very powerful. And really, um, I think it was something that, I mean, that's what I've always been aware of, because of my sisters and my mom, and I had Atlantic Zili. My mom was very, very ill when I was born. She practically died. I mean, I she had to have a... Apparently, I, when I came into the world, I took most of a womb with me. I brought most of it with me, and uh, you know, I, I was I had the cord wrapped around my neck. I was, I was, I was a double breech, whatever that is. And so, <laughs> so I caused my mum considerable agony, and my auntie Zili, who was French, and she'd just been repatriated after the war, and she was living with us because my uncle Tom. Who he was a fascinating character. He was a masseuse, but he worked for a French football team, and they got cut off. Uh, The team got cut off, and he ended up couldn't get home. Everybody said, "Well, there's no way you have to jump on a boat." So he, from his team, you know, they they went on a boat to in Dunkirk.
1: And were you treated differently because you were the only boy and you had sisters?
3: Well, I wasn't the only boy. I, was, I had a brother. But my brother was wacky. I mean, he was, he was kind of a wild kid, my brother. And in a way, um, my mother and him had a kind of very violent relationship. I mean, he was very... My mum was quite... She could be quite tough, <laughs> to say the least. Not with me. She was never... Because she was too ill by the time I came. But she was, you know, she'd given my brother a bit of a runaround. But I had these three sisters, all of which. Are, well, my eldest sister was is about to be ninety, and my second eldest sister will be eighty-nine, and my third eldest sister is eighty-five. So I have these. I had these women, uh, which was fantastic. What happened? And what happened was that my dad had a shop, as I say, and. Uh, it was a shop in uh, in this part of Dundee called Charles Street, and he really served the community wonderfully. But he also gave a lot of credit. So it was what was known as tick, and uh, and people didn't pay their bills. And of course, he he died within three weeks of his diagnosis. Uh, he had what pancreatic he cancer, mm-hmm. and he was dead within three weeks. So that really affected my mum. Well, my mum was, she had not been well for a long time, really since I was born. So for the first seven years of my, my my aunt Azili was around, certainly would not until I was about four. And then my mum was there, but she was, she was always not quite present. And at one point she actually ran away. I think she had a, I think she was going through a very long, but this is even before my father's death, but I think she was really finding, because she was a very bright woman, my mother, and she was very imaginative, but, I think she really didn't know how to. She didn't have the right means or route to express what she wanted to express. I also think, I suspect that she was bisexual. I uh, I think she was.
1: Uh, Why do you think that?
3: Because there was a woman she had a relationship with. I mean, it wasn't. It was not a physical relationship, but it was a woman that she spent a lot of time with, and I think. I, I don't know, I, I, as I've got older, I've, I've seen it as a, I mean it's very, in a kind of working class situation It would be almost impossible to express.
2: you were told your father had died
3: yeah I remember it vividly I was uh, I came home from school it was a Friday afternoon it was March the 11th 1955 so we've just celebrated his 65th well not celebrated but we just had his 65th anniversary and I came home from school and uh, I walked up the stair and we lived in a close and our apartment was on the first floor and I came in the clothes and, her, and there was a lovely old woman had goiter she used to wear a scarf it was very old she was called mrs robbie and she was standing there and she was crying and uh she said i remember she said to me uh, oh brian 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 oh poor wee brian i remember that's what she said to me and i uh, thought oh. and then i went up the stairs my front door was open and i remember of <laughs> course as always in, in times of incredible crisis of stress the table was packed with food i remember i I just it was food and cake and everything all over and my mother i could see her head just above the table she was sitting hunched on an armchair by the by the by the the fireplace and um, she looked at me and she she burst into tears and you know and then i realized my dad had gone Uh, and it had been very sudden and I was immediately whisked away. I didn't I didn't have I wasn't I didn't go to his funeral. I went to I was put in front of a television <laughs> um my my cousin one of my cousins plays in up in Clipperton Road in Dundee. And I was of course I was in front of this television for you know, as a as my solace.
1: Do you really regret not going to the funeral?
3: I yeah I Probably. I don't know. It's very funny. It sort of marked me in a way. I'm, I kind of avoid. I mean, I do go to funerals. I've been going to a lot of funerals recently because I'm at an age where people are popping their clogs left, right, and center. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't mind funerals. Um, I probably do regret that I didn't go to my father's funeral, but I actually was. But there was also a part of me which was cared for. You know, I was somebody was taking care of me, you know, saying, you know, because I, be, I would be at the funeral and I'd be the young, because everybody was so much older than me, my sisters and my brother. My brother, he was 16, and he, I always think my brother had it far worse than I did. You know, everybody said, oh, poor Brian, poor Brian. But I think my brother immediately ran away to the army and joined, which he didn't have to do, you see, because my father had a business and he could have took over the business. So what happened was that after the funeral and everything had died down, we discovered that my father had no money. He had nothing. He had ten pounds in the bank, uh, and he, we found his, we got his bank book because, you know, the credit that he'd extended to people, course, well, came back on him. So he was... And he'd probably been in that, and that probably exacerbated his health condition because he'd been in that situation probably for some couple of years, I mean he did very well out of the war, he had, in fact we, he, 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 he wasn't a businessman my dad, he was a bit of a dreamer for that, he, he wasn't a businessman at all, so he, he then, um, what happened was he, he got involved with some people with building and he put some money into building and he lost it and my mother because that's what I always remember because my mother always, her great thing to me was just remember Brian, charity begins at home you know, and uh, I wasn't in, you know, and it was, it was pretty bleak, really.
2: So what did your mum do?
3: Well, my mum, she tried to uh, run the shop. Two of my brother-in-laws came to help, and then my oldest uh, sister's husband, Dave, came and helped as well, but my mother never liked him, so there was always a problem, and she was she got quite paranoid and she was really quite ill she wasn't mentally well and and eventually she did um she did try to commit suicide and uh, were you
1: there when it happened yeah i was where
3: where was it was it at home i I was at home i came well we used to have this tiny scullery um my mother one time and my brother was fooling around she'd hit a chip pan and chip fat went all over burnt her arm very very severely and i remember that we were all fascinated by this huge meringue she had on her arm this was years before or well, it was only a couple of years before but she was she was there and uh i came home and i could i could smell gas and she was on her knees um and the the, the, the oven was was open and and she she was she said oh, i'm just giving it a wee clean she was, <laughs> i'm giving it a wee clean and i said there's a Smell a gas, Ma. She said, oh, I must have knocked one of the gases. I said, oh, I saw it. Happen. And anyway, she...
2: So what did you do?
3: Well, I didn't know what it was. No. I mean, I only realised in hindsight that it was a suicide attempt. Yeah. Um, but then she, she really got very ill, and they took her away. And. Uh... Do you remember
1: that, her taking Oh, yeah, taken
3: yeah, yeah, I remember that. I mean, it was not good. Where did they take her? They took her to uh, Lyft, the hospital at Lyft. There was two hospitals, and there was an insane asylum, and then there was a hospital for nervous diseases. And they took her there, and they gave her electric shock treatment, which was pretty awful, really. Were Uh,
1: you allowed to go and see her at all? Yeah, yeah, I went to see her. Did she change after the Oh, yeah.
3: She was, you know, she was a... I think I've got a photograph of her somewhere. I do, somewhere here so i know it's somewhere i'll find it in a minute um yeah she was quite you know she was quite large and then she became very very little you know very small uh she was only about four foot eleven
2: how did the electric shock therapy affect her
3: well it destroyed most of her memory i mean Mm -hmm. she really couldn't remember anything and it was there to to destroy memory um that which was painful uh It's been reintroduced. I mean, it's a a drastic treatment. Um, Very drastic. I mean, I'm not sure about it at all. But it certainly affected my ma. She was not, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't right. She was never right. She never, never I mean, she she became very eccentric and very funny. I mean, she was very, very funny. My mum, she used to. And she was very innocent too. There was a sort of innocence about her. And did
1: you constantly feel the need to protect her
3: then? Yeah, I did. But she was also tough. I mean, there was a, there was a, a res- I mean, she was the eldest child of a pretty brutal father who was an alcoholic. So she, her survival mechanism was quite. And she'd gone to Canada, actually, ironically, when she yeah. was a young girl. She went into service. Uh, and she'd met my father. They met at a, at a, <laughs> they met in Montrose. Uh, in those days, it was strictly not on for uh, couples who had lost parents to be seen uh, enjoying themselves. So if they wanted to dance, they would go up to Montrose, which was just a few miles outside the town. And, and my father was wearing one of those black bands, because he had lost his father, and she had just lost. They both lost their fathers within months of one another. And my mother, my mother actually asked my father to dance, and that was how it all started. hospital who looked after you well that's hard to say i i had betty i mean my sister betty kind of I. Like, well my sister irene first of all was there yeah she was there and yeah my sister irene but then my sisters my uh, my both my sister both my older sisters were very good about it. irene was supposed to be emigrating to canada and so they uh, they really took it upon themselves to make sure that she did go. So at the age of 21, and I would have been about 11 then, 10 actually, she, she went to Canada. One of my sisters moved back up to Scotland for a brief time, and my, they, they said, well, okay, Irene, you, you go, you go, and she did. I mean, I'd left to have a merry dance because I used to, <laughs> I was constantly going, I was constantly being locked in cinemas to four o'clock in the morning (laughs) and breaking out of cinemas. And my sister would be going nuts, wondering where the hell I was and saying, where have you been?
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot,
3: I was constantly being locked in cinemas till four o'clock in the morning <laughs> and breaking out of cinemas and my sister would be going nuts wondering where the hell I was and saying, where have you been? And, and this day, I, I went to see I went to see Giant at the Greens Playhouse in Dundee. I went there, I, I played truant, I used to play turbo truant on school. So I played truant, I went and sat through three performances, I must have fallen asleep. So I woke up in a darkened cinema at four o'clock in the morning and I... I broke out of the cinema and rang on the high street past the, ple- the TARDIS, the police box, and there was a voice said, where are you going, laddie? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I've just, I, was, I was locked, where have you been? I was locked in the, where have you been? I, I was locked in the cinema, I couldn't get out, so I, I found the door, and I, well, we'll have to take a look at you, so <laughs> he came out, and they took me home, and my sister was going nuts because <laughs> I was missing. but eventually she went to Canada so she was relieved of all of that. It must have so, rather
1: wonderful to go into the cinemas though than just watch films. Oh yeah, and I used to do that all the, the
3: time. I mean, was that, that your escape? Though? That was my babysitter. Mm. You know, I spent, you know, I used to go to the cinema. Well, in those days it was uh, double features and you'd go in at six and you'd come out at 11 and then where I lived, I mean, in my hometown at one time there were 21 cinemas and where we lived in, in Brown Constable Street, Arthur Stone Terrace which was sort of At right angles to where we lived was my church my library the broadway on one side and on the other side the royal so there was the broadway cinema the royal and they had programs three days a week uh uh, yeah they changed programs three days a week so you could see as many as eight movies in a week Mm. it's great Um,
2: but what did you eat how did you live how did you get money
3: uh, how did I live? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I depend on... I, I had a, a lot of aunties, you know. Not aunties, sort of... Yeah, there were aunties. Well, actually, there were cousins because my dad was the youngest of 13 and his sister, who had actually given him the shop initially, was 25 years older than him. So he had, he had, he had nieces and nephews who were actually more like cousins, but they were nieces and nephews. And there was one woman, there was the Carol, there was Bella McAdams and Lizzie Carroll, Lizzie McAdams who became, and they used to, you know, I used to go around there and spend time with them. And then, you know, and my sister would look out for me. I was, I mean, I stayed at my sister's house, my sister Betty's house, well, house, it was a flat, it was actually a two bedroom flat with five others and two toilets on the stair that would, you know, that was it. And I had to sleep with my uh, my nephews, who are only eight years younger than me, and uh, and that was, you know, it was okay. But they slept in the front room and we slept in the back room, and it was difficult. It was smaller even than where I'd lived in Brown Constable Street.
2: Did you ever go hungry?
3: No, I mean we did, we did have a couple of times when I had to. Ah, uh, oh gosh. We had a couple of times when I had to, um, my mother would get a pension on a, on a widow's pension on a Friday, and uh, we'd probably have no money on the Thursday, and we had no, it didn't happen all the time, but a couple of times. We didn't have any food. So I would go to the local fish and chip shop and ask for batter bits from the back of the pan or the thing, and he would wrap up the batter bits and, I'd get the batter bits and that would be our tea (laughs) on a Thursday night. That didn't happen all the time, but it was one, two traumatic times when it happened. She took care of me. She looked after me. Was there any
1: sense of shame at all about your mother being in hospital? No, none at
3: all. all. None at all. No, it was just, I think, I I, I think they realised, you know, my mother would, you know, did give my father a bit of a hard time but that was because she wasn't well, I think, and my father tried to do the best for her. And it was just the war, they'd done well, they'd made some money, but everything had gone wrong, you know, and people were not paying their bills, and and it was, you know, it was rationing, it was, you know, not a good time. And in
1: a sense though, do you feel the community brought you together more than say now when You'd probably have counselling, or
3: yeah. I mean, the community, you know, re- relate, you know, you know. We were very close knit in that way, um, you know. And you noticed it, in your, you know, my dad. People loved my dad. My dad was, I mean, I mean, someone like, I think it was over nearly three hundred people came to his funeral. Uh, I don't know because I wasn't there, but but he was very, he was very loving man. I mean, he was a. He really was. He was a very sweet, sweet guy. And, uh, you know, everybody loved him. I mean, he was, he was an incredibly loved man and a generous man. As I say, generous to a fault, Apart part of my mother. My mother, and that was what my mother, she had to live with this star, you know, in a way. And I think she was partly jealous and her nose was out of joint. And also she, I think she imagined all kinds of things about him, you know, but my Auntie Zeely, who was French, and, uh, you know, I think my mum thought she was a bit nervous of my Auntie Zeely, <laughs> so, you know, that kind of, you know, that sort of all contributed in one way or another, but my, you know, my, my dad was, he his my mum, I mean, he loved her to bits, but he was very disappointed at the end that she, but she wasn't well, I mean, she really was, I mean, it was just the conflation of events you know I mean nobody was to blame nobody is to blame in these situations it's just it's just how much can you take how much can you put up with and uh, it was hard it was really hard it was really tough and it was tough for my mom you know I mean, my mother ran the show and that was oh gosh and that's the problem I mean she never got credit for running the show you know she was expe- I mean, women were just expected to do that you know, you run the show let the man go on with it you know so that's where the imbalance has been for so long a lot of people are very unsympathetic to my mother but and I could be as well but I realized it was it's very hard to be number 2
1: Because you didn't have much money when you were you you like to shop, like you have a bigger wardrobe, don't you, than your wife, is oh, that? Terrible. And do you feel embarrassed ever by that?
3: Um, no.
1: <laughs> so in, what do you like shopping for way. most?
3: Well actually I like shopping uh, for my wife. I mean I actually like shopping for, she calls me her Jean-Paul, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love that, I love shopping for my wife. I've always liked shopping for women, you know, because. You know, women know how to wear clothes, and and, and and women's clothes are much more interesting than men's clothes.
1: So, do you just go shopping down the high street to or? To yeah,
3: I'll go shopping. I will, I'll do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I am one of the people who are, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but do you think that's because you didn't have much when you were younger?
3: Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure there's all kinds of reasons for it. Um, but, uh, no, I've also just, I like, Line and look and form, you know. I mean, I love all that.
1: You're a natural hoarder, then,
3: as well, or not? Well, my sister has got a real problem with it. I mean, you, she's her house is now a fire zone. They they won't allow like, my eighty-five-year-old sister. She's oh, it's terrible what's happened, but she's she's hoarded. Oh. It's very interesting. Hoarding's uh, controlling. It's all about control, and I, I think there's an element to me which is uh, control. I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak.
1: And is that because your childhood was so complicated? Yeah, you?
3: probably. It's probably that's you know, and, and and it's also to do with surviving. You know, that, I mean, my daughter, uh, she had problems that way as well, and it's usually, usually a lot of controlling things come from trauma. In my sister's case, it was from being in an in, in, in earthquake and in L.A. and being caught in the black box, Universal, in the elevator where she was tossed around like a peanut. And that sort of freaked her out. And then she became a hoarder. She started to hoard her. And I, I, I think that's the reason. You know, So there are reasons. And it's been very difficult. You Because know? she's, she's very sweet, my sister, but she's back crazy about <laughs> that, that stuff. You know, you can't throw anything out. But for you, if
2: you lost your father and then you effectively lost your mother, you need to try and keep control of your environment.
3: Yeah, you do. But also, the the other thing is, yeah, but you also, you've had to learn to let go in circumstances where you wouldn't want to let go. Was no. your father the performer? No, no. No, no, my dad was, I mean he could play the banjo, but he wasn't really a performer. I mean, my sisters are performers. I mean, my my second eldest sister has got a wonderful singing voice and of course she's disappointed because she never did anything with her. And that, that's the thing that, you know, I realized that I wasn't going to... I wasn't going to waste any time, you know, because I could see that. I mean, I was wise enough. In a way, and blessed enough to see how people start blaming their lives and saying, Oh, I should have did it, should have, could have, would have, you know. And I don't go for any should have, could have, would have, I just say, Do it, you know.
2: Is that, do you think, having survived, you just want to get on and it gives you a determination to yeah. succeed? Yeah, yeah,
3: you just get on, you know, and you, you know, and you, you know, especially in this game, it's a, it's a, it's a tough game and it's very. You know, and it goes in these waves. You know, it's not it's not as steady. And I'm, I mean, touch wood. I mean, I'm now at a time in my career where I'm doing. And I always knew. You see, people used to say to me when I was younger, but I kind of knew it that it was going to be the long haul, that it wasn't about. I mean, I did very well. I was, I did my made my West End debut when I was 21, so I I did very well. So I've got no I'm no, I've got no complaints, but at the same time I knew that I wanted to be doing it at this age. That's when, because also I knew that the parts were more interesting, mm-hmm. you know, and life's experience is much better.
1: And how much do you think you draw on your background and your childhood in all your roles?
3: Well, uh, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, I, I only in terms of comparison. I mean, I couldn't play everything from that point of view, but I, yeah, I mean, it... it it's given me an understanding of certain things that people... And, uh, and I am a socialist. Uh, I'm probably a Marxist. I'm probably leaning that way.
2: Does it bother you that there are so many posh boys in It bothers AT? me
3: a lot. Because Why do you think it is? Well, it's, it's all to do with, you know, I'm, I'm guilty as much as anybody else. I sent my son to uh, St Paul's. And my daughter, she went to Cheltenham Ladies College, you know. <laughs> I know. And oh, why
1: it? is that? Because he wanted to give them every advantage. Well, it's because I,
3: mar- I married a tough, <laughs> <laughs> or a would-be tough. You know, my first wife was very organised, very Caroline Burt. Her father was a GP, and her mother was a, a Glasgow opportunist of the first order. You know, who was used her beauty and looks to get whatever she could, and finally married my ex-lovely father-in-law, who was a dear man, Clive Burt. But it was that value system, you know, we've got to make sure that the kids get the proper education. And of course, I, was, I didn't know any better. You know, I just, I was as opportunist as the next. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. And they had a good education. But at the same time, it causes the officials in our, you know, we're a small country. You know, we should be like Finland or Norway, you know, we should be taking care of our people and making sure that we are working as a small unit.
2: And you put the royals into that same sense of entitlement. Didn't you once meet Princess Margaret? I did, yeah. What I, happened?
3: I got touched up. Yeah. <laughs> when? She, um, she, um, <laughs> she un- I, 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 it was 1969. I was doing, I was 23. And I was, you know, not bad looking <laughs> when I was 23. <laughs> uh, And uh, I came late to this um, function. It was in Alan Bates' dressing room at the Royal Court. And I came late, and I'd washed my hair, and I was kind of glistening and wet. And I was wearing this red button-up shirt, but I I was sort of unbuttoned about here. And I rushed in, and I found myself with Margaret. And she was there being very sort of, oh, you're so wonderfully, wonderfully hooded. I just I wanted to know more and more about you. Your your performance. You were so hooded. She kept going on about how how hooded I was, and I'm going well. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And then she said, Ah, and it's your birthday, I believe. I said, Yeah, yeah, it's my birthday. She said, Oh, good. Oh, oh, and is this the shirt? I said, the Shirt. She said, Oh I said, Yeah, Lindsay bought me this for her birthday. And she she went, Oh, oh, what a lovely shirt. And then she started putting her hand in here. And
1: Did you say anything?
3: I, I was dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded. I couldn't say anything. I eventually said, excuse my man, I have to go. But, you know, after... She, she didn't quite get as far as my nipple, but she nearly <laughs> got there. <down. laughs> so I, I, I beat a hasty retreat. And after, Jimmy Bolum, who was there, he witnessed the whole thing. He would going, oh, you're in there, you're in there. Oh, I mean, oh, God.
1: Do you think you should have been in the crown then as well? Or not? Me?
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you no, know, you no. Know, no, I mean, the crown, because I, I mean, that like that was the last thing in the world I would ever watch was the crown, and I think it's one of the best things ever. <laughs> that's the irony of it. Because you see them as human beings, you know, because they are human beings. They're flawed human beings, and and you can't knock the queen. She is an extraordinary woman, and she's done an extraordinary job from a terrible value system, you know, that they're perpetrating, the, I mean, almost... The notion of the divine right of kings, not bollocks, you
1: know. And are we too obsessed by class
3: then in a vibe? We're a feudal. We're feudal. We're still a feudal system. It's not going away.
2: Do you think one reason succession has been so successful is that it does tap into this sense that there's one rule for the rich and powerful? I think that's exactly why.
3: I think it. I mean, it's ironic, you know. I'm doing the show. I'm playing somebody who oh, yeah. I totally abhor. You know, <laughs> I don't totally abhor him, but I do abhor him. Yeah, you know, I abhor his values. But also, I think these are values that have been instilled from the word go. I mean, I think he is the product of of the get rich idea, of the product of how You make the best of your circumstances. In the way I did, but he makes it from a very right-wing point of view, and I made it from a very left-wing point of view. But it's understandable, and it's understandable how people are affected. And, of course, it hits a zeitgeist of the moment of this... This, uh, the entitlement, these horrible people like Jared Kushner and his missus and these people who are doing such damage, who have no idea, you know, no idea what's going on.
1: And in some ways the succession then more like the Trump administration and the Trump family,
3: do you think? Than no, it's, 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 it's a, it, 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 no, because they're, they're more intelligent. I, well, the children aren't, but the father is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's more intelligent. Mm. I think he's more intelligent than Trump. He's a nihilist, actually, and that's his real danger. He doesn't really care. He's a nihilist, because he also believes that the human experiment is disappointing. And, and he and I agree. There's, no, there's nothing to choose. You know, well, how has it got this bad? I believe we have to do radical things to change it. He believes, let the ship sink.
1: Do you ever feel guilty that you're torturing all the family in succession? Or do you actually rather no. enjoy it?
3: I don't enjoy it. I, I I want them to step up to the plate. I want them to step into their power and none of them have done it.
1: <laughs> so you're deeply disappointed in them all?
3: Terribly disappointed. They are disappointing. They really are, you know, because they they won't do it and Kendall has finally now made a stab at something, you know, which is to destroy his father and good luck to him. I hope it goes well. Uh, but you know, I, 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 that's what's so interesting about he's... And I think that's why people... And because people really do like Logan. Mm. They really do like Logan because they go, Oh, this man. And it is because it, 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 you really present something on the horns of a dilemma. You know, a powerful man who can do powerful things, but who is a nightmare, you know, just in terms of, um, you know, his... Um, Virtue, Is it know. true
2: that people come up to you at parties and ask you to swear at them?
3: Oh, the time? <laughs> I was at a Me Too meeting and uh, with uh, Ronan Farrell at a book club that my friend Rosanna Arquette had organised. And she said, will you come? I said, sure. So I came and I watched this very serious evening. And then afterwards, when it finished, suddenly I found myself surrounded by a bunch of women. And... Um, Perhaps two asked me the inevitable question, could I video telling me to fuck off? (sighs) And I went, is that really appropriate at a Me Too evening? But I just also think it's indicative of the confusion that we're in.
1: It's strange your children have had such a different life from you.
3: Well, it is, but it but it's also part of you know their tra- trajectory is part of what my trajectory was, and their fathers. I think it's not. I'm I'm not easy as a father. I think I'm fairly uh, <laughs> very difficult to pin down. I think a lot of the time. Do you uh, shout at all or not? Oh, Rachel? terrible shout. Yeah. You know, terrible I, I, I don't shout as much now as I used to but I, when I was younger I was, I was always shouting
1: and is that more your mother than your father then?
3: yeah, my father never shouting mm-hmm. my father never raised his voice, my mother did I mean, my mother ran the show and that was oh gosh and that's the problem, I mean, she never got credit for running the show you know, she was expe- I mean, women were just expected to do that you, know, you run the show, let the man go on with it, you know. So that's where the imbalance has been mm-hmm. for so long. And I think those imbalances get confused in the sexual area. But that, just, just politically, what women would, in terms of how they were made to be servants as much as anything else, I just feel is awful. <laughs>
2: with your children, do you spoil them or do you want them to stand on their own two feet?
3: I kind of want them to stand on their own two feet. I'll spoil them occasionally, but I kind of want them to really, you know, know that they have to earn what they do. I mean, it's circumstance, you know, I, I don't I don't believe that everybody should be under the thumb. I think there should be a certain amount of leeway in, in life. And, you know, and as long as they're not monsters and my kids are actually very sweet they're very nice kids they have their problems um, and their problems are their problems but I've always felt I felt that with my older children that one of the things I I think is a great advantage is that I don't they don't owe me anything and their dad and that you know there's a sort of you know that happened but they don't owe me anything, and I never, ever want them, i never wanted them to feel that they're bound in some way. I, you know, I've always wanted my kids to be free. I mean, I just, I resent, I, resent, I reject them at a certain point. You know, just say, get on with it. You, know, you do it. You do what you do. You know, I, I'm, I'm not here.
1: Itself, if you could go back to when your father died what would you want to say
3: uh, I'll just I want to say it's going to be okay you're, you're going to be okay um, you're you know it's tough now but it'll pass and these will be great memories for you uh, they can't take that away from you they can't take that away that your mum was your mum and your dad was your dad and your sisters are your sister and your brother is your brother they can't take that away from you that's a given um, but move on. Don't dwell. Keep going. Keep moving. Keep trucking.
2: <laughs> Brian Cox, thank you very much for talking to us.
3: My pleasure. Very much my pleasure.
2: Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester.
1: And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmond. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.